Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Posse of the People. On this episode, we have a conversation with Congressman John Yarmuth, the ranking Democrat on the House Committee on the Budget. We also have Don Leanne Gardner, an incredible actress on the hit TV series on own, Queen Sugar. And we have the news with me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam, as you hear us every week. Before we get in, I'll talk about conflict a little bit. I'm reminded that our ideas can be in conflict without us being in conflict. And we are in a world so often where we disagree when our ideas are in conflict. Sometimes that automatically puts people in conflict with each other. And I push you to think about scenarios where like, you can have ideas that are completely opposite with some people, that you can press each other on ideas. You can help people see the world differently and invite people to challenge you to see the world differently as well without you necessarily being in conflict with them. With that said, let's jump in. And now the news with me, Brittany Packnett, former appointee to the Ferguson Commission and President Obama's task force in 21st century policing. Clint Smith the third, Clint Smith I, 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 who is our resident academic and Sam Singangwe, who is our resident data scientist. Here we go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Singangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Clint Smith I I I on all social media. I I I. Every time I see people uh, tweet you like that, Clint, it is hilarious to me. I love it. It's so great. I've just accepted that that is a part of my brand at this point. <laughs> and this is Dre at Dre D R A Y on Twitter. So, did folks see the U.S. Open Women's Final this weekend? Yep, yep. I did shout out to Sloane Stevens out here, champ. I saw the also saw that photo that was going around yes. on Twitter of her. After she got that $3.7 million check and she was like, what? Laying on the ground. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yes. She- oh, my God. <laughs> Did you guys see the press conference? Yeah, that's what I was going to say was my favorite part, right? So it was, A, really dope to see two women of color on the court. Um, and, you know, with Sloan being the champion that she is, a reminder that um, Venus and Serena were not some kind of fluke, right? But that this is a sport that Black folks, that women of color, that Black women can continue to be dominant and beyond them. Um but the press conference, someone asked Sloane Stevens if this is inspires her to win more championships. And she was like, yeah, did you see that $3.7 million check that lady handed me? <laughs> she was like, uh, yes, I am deeply inspired <laughs> to keep winning. And I'm like, you know what? Thank you for saying what we were all thinking, because the glory of... The court is important, right? And being a champion, I'm sure, matters deeply. But also, like, everybody eating. And everybody's eating lobster tonight. And that's a good thing. And it was fly to see Serena come out. Uh, she tweeted something about how she was so excited for the two women. And and it was cool. You know, I think that it's always nice to for folks to, like, open up the space for, for those who are coming after them. Because um, that doesn't always happen. You know, some people like being the only one. So it was cool to see Serena you know, fresh, fresh from the from the hospital and from giving birth to what I'm sure is a beautiful baby girl. Be so uh, be so generous, especially when um, folks are reemerging back into the scene after taking performance enhancing drugs and still losing oh, and trying to come snap. through with all the gossip. <laughs> oh, <laughs> snap. Maria, <laughs> I, I was waiting for some shade to come out. 
towards uh, Maria. You know, I mean, she brought the shade out, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. <she laughs> I'm only responding shade to shade. Oh, yeah, it's well-deserved. Well-deserved. It's also weird that that's called a rivalry, though. Like, it's weird that it's called a rivalry when, like, Serena has smacked her every time they've played. Well, Maria beat her, I want to say, once or twice in the early days. And then, like, eight, the literally the next 18 times, Serena was like, nope, not over here. Not today, not ever. And let us never forget that Serena won the Australian Open when she was pregnant. One of the most remarkable athletic feats of all time. The GOAT. The greatest of all time for folks who don't know what that acronym means. Every excerpt that I see from Sharpova's book is literally like a biography of Serena. Like it is for her to be so obsessed with Serena at this point, but to make it seem like she's not the one that's pressed is sort of hilarious. And it was so beautiful to see uh, Sloan and Madison uh, play each other and have so much kindness and love towards each other uh, in the end. Like that was beautiful to see. It's always remarkable to see, see Serena and Venus play each other. And Clint, you're right to see Serena like remember to extend uh, that sort of love and build that community like as she is raising her newborn was also beautiful to see. And Sloane's energy and grace at the press conference is just awesome. I can't wait to like potentially meet her one day or talk to her. Like she is such a joy and it'll be amazing to see her career take off as it already has uh, since her win. So I wrote a piece for the new Republic this past week um, that was thinking about and reflecting on uh, the affirmative action conversation that was happening a little bit last month uh, and, and I, you know, I learned, there were a lot of hot takes after, and and a lot of people had some really great things to say about it. Um, and I was, I spent some time thinking about it and wanted to sort of revisit uh, something that I brought up on the podcast a little bit before and kind of alluded to, but wanted to dig a little deeper and give people some of the specific uh, social science and history around it. And so there was a book that I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago or a couple months ago called When Affirmative Action Was White, and that's The Untold History of Racial Inequality uh, by a Columbia historian and political scientist, Ira Katznelson. And part of what Katznelson is doing in this book is he is pushing back against the notion that like affirmative action in the way we understand it in a contemporary sense is something that is unique historically. Um, and part of the, what the argument he's making is that the white people have had affirmative action in this country in a myriad of ways. Uh, through public policy decisions and social engineering over the course of decades and decades and decades. And the example, the primary example that he uses is the uh, the New Deal, right? So the New Deal, as we've talked about, is often discussed as the most progressive series of legislative acts that have ever been signed. You know, FDR signed them after the Great Depression. They are what created the contemporary middle class. They are what is responsible for uh, intergenerational wealth that that manifested itself after the in, throughout the 20th century and into the 21st century, and all of this is true. Was often not discussed, um, and and that I didn't fully know the history of until I read Cass Nelson's book is that the New Deal was specifically created with the intention of leaving Black people out of it and not having them uh, accrue the benefits of the the sort of social foundation. Of, of economic mobility that was created by the New Deal. So to get into the nitty-gritty a little bit, uh, in the 1930s, more than 60% of the black labor force was either a farm worker or a domestic worker. That number was near 75% for those who were employed in the South. Uh, and so the people in these professions found themselves excluded until the 50s, right? So like decades after this policy was implemented from social security programs, from minimum wage protection, from regulated hours of work, from creating and being a part of labor unions, uh, and, and a myriad of these different things that, again, laid the sort of social and economic bedrock for uh, intergenerational wealth and mobility. 
through the early 20th century. And part of the reason that that happened was because states and local governments were given jurisdiction over how to administer the New Deal programs, uh, including those meant to help uh, veterans and the poor. And so Southern politicians, Southern Democrats specifically, had so much power in the in the federal government that they said, FDR, the only way you can pass this legislation is if you make it so that there are uh, no uh, non-discrimination provisions in the legislation, right? Which essentially is like, you have to allow these uh, pieces of legislation to accommodate to the Jim Crow systems we have here in the South. And FDR, you know, let that happen. And as a result, these professions, which disproportionately affected um, and employed Black people, were not given access to so many of the benefits. So another New Deal initiative that arguably had an even greater impact on shaping the upward mobility of millions of Americans was the Services Servicemen's Readjustment Act, uh, which is more famously known as the GI Bill, which had the goal of reintegrating 16 million military veterans after the Second World War. Uh, and it remains the most expansive set of social benefits ever extended by the federal government through a single program. The government spent over $95 billion between 1944 and 1971 on benefits for veterans. And at one point, the GI Bill uh, made up 15% of the total federal budget, right? So this is like, it's, it's difficult to overstate how expansive this program was. And it's also difficult to overstate the extent to which Black people were not afforded the benefits of the GI Bill because so many colleges and so many places specifically, uh, but not singularly in the South, uh, did not afford the the benefits that were extended by this program or that were meant to be extended by this program to some of the folks who needed it most, right? So you had people who served in World War II coming back from war uh, who were not given access to to this bill and who were prevented from going into so many of the schools in the country that they fought to defend against fascism and Nazism, uh, which is, you know, a, a different story for a different time in the ways that like black soldiers often come back to a country that uh, they fought for that then continues to discriminate against them and, and oppress them in a range of ways. So I bring up all of this because I think it's really important to understand that like for the GI bill and social security are the foundations of upward mobility and the middle class in the 20th century moving into the 21st century. And so what happens is if you have, the foundations of intergenerational wealth, and you give that group, you give those benefits to one group of people and you don't give them to another group of people, it would seem logical that they would go on to have different outcomes because they were afforded different sets of benefits and different resources, right? But part of what we do in this country is we have a sort of ahistorical take on the the way that inequality has manifested itself and we don't take into account things like these really expansive public policy decisions uh, on a federal, state, and, and municipal level um, that went on to create profound sorts of social stratification uh, in ways that that continue to have deep effects today. So I bring that up because you can't we can't have an honest conversation about quote unquote affirmative action and and what it's doing or not doing for black people without talking about how the federal government created what are essentially affirmative action initiatives for white folks that were far more expansive and had uh, far wider ranging implications. Yeah, just for some context, you, you know, you said it was 15% of the federal budget. I mean, the education department today is only 4% of the federal budget. Um, so you can imagine you have this huge program, you know, three or four times larger than, you know, the current investment in education being directed uh, at a very specific population of folks and not, and being having black folks excluded from that 
investment. Um, and I think, you know, when you look at that, you look at the benefits of homeownership uh, that were accrued to, to white families uh, through the FHA uh, loans. Um, and you get a huge proportion of that is responsible for the current wealth gap between black and white families. It's $131,000 um, on average between black and white families, uh, difference in wealth. Um, and that can be traced back directly to, to these very intentional policies um, focused on advantaging and benefiting white families and uh, being structured in a way that excluded uh, families of color. So my piece of news builds off of this uh piece that Clint brought about intentional inequity and the ways in which the federal government um, very specifically uh, crafted public policy to advantage uh, and support white families, often to the exclusion of black families. Um, and it has to do with a, a picture that was tweeted out uh, over the weekend uh, by Chris Jones, who tweeted a picture of Griffin Park Housing Project in Orlando, Florida. Um, and Griffin Park Housing Project is uh, was built in the 1940s. It was a an affordable housing project specifically for black uh, low income black folks uh, in a segregated neighborhood called Paramore in uh, Orlando. And what's interesting about this housing project is today it is completely encircled by highways. Um, so there are two different highways that connect at that right next to this neighborhood and then loop around the neighborhood so much so that you have to cross uh, under an overpass uh, to go in any direction from it. Uh, and only 70 feet away from these houses, you have uh, cars running by 300,000 different motorists every single day. Uh, and so the, an article came out um, relatively recently about Griffin Park that really illustrates the ways in which um, this kind of planning uh, and which is definitely not unique to Griffin Park, but indeed happened all across the country, uh, has had negative effects for black folks um, while it was creating this massive highway system uh, that we take for granted today. Uh, so in the article, they go on to talk about how, number one, you know, this affordable housing project was built in the 1940s. By the 50s and 60s, they started to build these highways, uh, which they cleared out um, 551 houses in the Paramore neighborhood uh, were demolished to build this highway, which then cut off Griffin Park. Uh, and then nowadays living in Griffin Park, uh, you have extremely high levels of pollution uh, and noise that have been linked to high blood pressure, ulcers, increased risk of heart attack, uh, sleep disorders, um, cancer, lung disease, heart disease. Um, and then, you know, they also go on to interview some of the folks in Griffin Park uh, who talk about it living there being feeling boxed in uh, like we're in a prison. Um, and so I, I say all that to say, you know, the design of that highway system was very intentional. Uh, it cut through the black community. The reason it cut through the black community in Orlando was because the white community, Winter Park, uh, rejected uh, having a highway cut through their community. Uh, and so without any black representation on the city council or in the planning process, um, the you know, segregated, you know, Jim Crow at that time, um, Orlando government decided to just run this highway right through Paramore, um, cutting off Griffin Park. And so, you know, one of the things that, that this exposes, not only for Griffin Park, but for the entire, um, when you think about the design of the highway system, the design of infrastructure in the 50s and 60s alongside while these other programs that, that Clint, that you brought up were happening, 
you get the picture of how, you know, the built environment that we see today was very intentionally designed along racial lines uh, and designed in a way that continues to have negative effects for Black folks today. So both of these pieces together make me think about um, just how intentional inequity is, as you've said, Sam. Um, and I think it's really important to note that intentional injustice is not random, right? This is American tradition and it spans the entire nation. So in reading both of these pieces, I actually thought about my hometown of St. Louis. Um, and uh, there is a, a very famous, I guess, infamous question. Um, if you are from St. Louis, grow up in St. Louis, um, know anybody from St. Louis, we ask each other or folks ask us, what high school did you go to? And it is not a pleasant opener, right? It is a, uh, a tool to categorize people, both racially and socioeconomically, to um, put folks into boxes and basically determine who we believe that they are and whether or not they're people of any value based on where they went to high school. Um, and uh, that is because uh, St. Louis is a place where a number of um, small school districts exist uh, in small municipalities. And that happened because of housing stratification and the ghettoization in the technical sense of St. Louis City. There's a really wonderful film, uh, a documentary called The Pruitt-Igo Myth. It should be still on Netflix, um, but it talks about that exact pattern um, and the ways in which certain programs were created to build the middle class for white folks and certain uh, programs were restricted um, in order to uh, remove folks of color from um, from those roles. Uh, and so, you know, in St. Louis, we've also got the Del Mar Divide, which literally um, divides two parts of St. Louis City, one that is extremely wealthy, educated, um, and where there are a lot of resources and access. Um, and across the street, life is very different. Median income um, is much lower. Average education level is much lower, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, I think if you spend any time with pieces like the ones you all are talking about, the question I think for everyone who's listening is, how is that reflected where you live? How does that reflected where you grew up? Um, and what are all of the ways in which that stratification exists that you thought were random, um, but were actually deeply intentional? Uh, Brittany, you mentioned the Del Mar Divide, and that reminded me of um, Division Street in Orlando. So, you know, you know, growing up, I was not taught about, you know, this history um, of, you know, my own city. Uh, but what was clear to me was that there was a street that divided black and white communities, This uh, the divided Paramore community from downtown Orlando, which is uh, a wider, more affluent com community. Uh, and that street was called Division Street. And the reason it's called Division Street, um, it actually runs right underneath that highway um, that uh, breaks apart Griffin Park. Um, it's called Division Street because it was designed intentionally to split uh, black and white areas under segregation, and it continues to do so today. So, you know, even the markers are of the streets and, uh, you know, the, the landmarks are so intentional, uh, even to this day, about their, uh, the reason that they were built and the function that they still play. One of the things that this makes you think of is about Montgomery. I was in Montgomery around the 50th of the University of Selma and talked to one of the archivists at one of the museums down there. And he was talking about how uh, the White Citizens Council took control of the Highway Commission and they put highways literally right in front of all the churches that organized uh, in Montgomery so that they used the highway control of the highway bill to to literally like split communities so that they wouldn't be able to organize the way they did before, which is 
wild to me. And Brittany, when you talked about the idea of high schools, like where do you go to high school is like a question that demarcates so much more than sort of just where you went to high school, but it speaks about socioeconomic status or it speaks about uh, access to resources and opportunities. That's not unique to St. Louis. That is so many cities across the country, like, like Sam talked about and like other people talked about before, whether on the podcast or not. And I think about even at home in Baltimore, like where you went to school, it helps people make all these assumptions about you for better or for worse. And that is interesting. What I think is most fascinating about this for me though, is that there's a reminder that there is money that like the new deal was something that I'm sure people said they couldn't afford at the, at the time, but they made a huge investment to make, to allow white people to have different economic options and socioeconomic options in, in the country. You think about the GI bills that that cost a lot of money. Like you said, 15% of the federal budget uh, for these programs uh, separate or together is like a lot of money. And in this moment, when you talk about correcting for some of the ills, some of the intentional inequity focused on people of color that people suddenly are like, we just can't afford it. And it's like, we've always been able to find resources when we made a commitment to do it. And we've been able to do it at scale, especially when white people have been in question. And if you think about how intense it is that there are, there are more white people than anybody at this point, or definitely in those days. So when you can make an economic investment or you can make a social investment in the largest segment of the population, like you definitely can do it for the marginalized communities. And that's interesting to me. I am. I don't have like a deep thought here, but I'm also interested in like the labels that it wasn't called like the New Deal for white people or this deal that it's just going to benefit white Americans and explicitly exclude everybody else. It was called the New Deal and like the GI Bill, like the way that we label these things. I do think shapes the way that people interact with them, especially in history. That people don't think about the New Deal generally as like problematic with regard to discrimination, but um, the the label itself sort of allows people to to wiggle and it becomes like a wholly positive thing. And people say all the time, like, well, I didn't have slaves. Why are you complaining about the past? We moved on. And it's like, the reality is that people benefit from from the legacy of this. I think about Baltimore where there's a pier where the city sold $1 homes to, to white people and their whole neighborhoods and their whole communities that generations have benefited from like buying one dollar homes in amazing parts of the city as a part of an economic reinvestment in a way that we're just not doing with people of color at this point. And the thing that I uh, want to take away from this is not only to learn about history while it is frustrating, but also to remember that people did this. And because people did this, we can undo it and redo it and we can transform and remake. Um, and I think that seeing how people have imagined the past and what they've done at scale for better or for worse can help us think about how we can imagine at scale because it is possible to undo and redo so much. That point about language, I think, is important not to miss um, because that seemingly innocuous language can help provide the cover for exactly the kind of systemic injustice that you're talking about. Um, and I don't think that's, you know, some person is sitting in a chair um, with an evil grin saying, we'll call it this, but really mean this. Um, that is simply how inequity works, right? That is how people justify things that benefit them, them and, and people like them and not other folks. Um, that's why what high school did you go to sounds like a perfectly friendly conversation opener, and it's not. And so many people ask that question without recognizing what they're really asking because it's been asked of them so many times. And so not only is language uh, purposeful and intentional in these times, it also uh, self-perpetuates, right? So we can continue to perpetuate language that is actually deeply coded without recognizing what we're saying. And that's something we have to take a lot more responsibility for. And sometimes it is sort of a, 
sort of a maniacal figure trying to craft the language in a way that allows them to cause harm. You think about, you know, the war on drugs uh, and some of the sort of behind the scenes um, sort of details that have come out around why they labeled it the war on drugs and why they adopted that strategy uh, to essentially uh, go after black folks without saying that explicitly. Um, so in many ways, you know, at the top in the federal government and, and other folks in power, you know, sort of do have this um, intention to cause harm and, and do use language in a very uh, strategic way to, to cover it up. And I think, you know, we can see some of that happening today. So my news for today is about social media. So it's about the number of people who, of American adults who get their news from some sort of social media. So the latest study by the Pew Research Center survey says that about 67% of American adults somewhat rely on social media like Facebook, Twitter, or Snapchat for their news, which is up compared to 62% in 2016. But for the first time since the survey has been administered, the research found that about 55% of American adults over 50 were consuming news on social media sites, which is up from 45%. So a little bit over half of the American adults get some sort of news from social media, which is fascinating. And the age divide is even more dramatic with those under 50 remaining more likely than those over 50 to get news from social media. So 78% of the people under uh, 50 consume some news from social media platform and that Facebook is actually the dominant platform. So Facebook, about 45% of American adults say they get their news from the social media site, about 18% from YouTube and about 11% from Twitter. And that for non-whites, about 74% of non-whites in total get their news from social media sites. I say all this because I'm fascinated by the way that technology has completely changed the way that people absorb information and, and interact with the information. You think about the, the conversation happening about Russia right now is really interesting because so many people saw what was happening on Facebook and like took that to be the actual news. Uh, when we know now that the, the Russian bots and there were all these people sort of playing with the algorithms and playing with the way that people were delivered their news. And it'll be interesting to see how this plays out over time. I think about like the movement would not have begun if, if there weren't people on Twitter and on Facebook, especially in those early days in Ferguson. And we've seen the incredible way that can allow information to spread. I'm interested to see what this looks like over time though, as everybody has become a content creator. So the curation is just so different all of a sudden because there's just so much content out there. So that's my news. Fascinated by the number of people and the percentage of people who use social media as a way to get information. Yeah, the perspective around Facebook was really interesting to me. I too immediately thought of when Facebook started. I think um, my university was one of the first 10 or 20 schools or something like that to be on the platform. And so I distinctly remember when this was about youth, right? It was it was um, directed toward a college-going population. Um, and then obviously the strategy has evolved since. And I think about how much kind of technology marketing and branding around social media is, is dedicated to and focused on young consumers, um, early adopters, but Facebook has been around for a long time. And so people have been able to get used to the platform. We all joke about what happens when your mom gets on Facebook. But a lot of our parents are on Facebook, right? A lot of our um, extended family members are on Facebook. And so um, I think it's going to be important that those of us who are attempting to be responsible arbiters of news do not ignore that platform. 
Um, it also just makes me think about the the technology behind this stuff. And I am not super well diversed in this, but you know, all of us often get asked um, questions from Silicon Valley of how tech companies can continue to pursue social justice. Um, and those ag- algorithms really make a difference. We know that they constantly change, that they're something that the average consumer does not pick up on, does not understand. We know that a lot of our platforms change from being purely chronological to based on a particular algorithm, but those algorithms are based in popularity. And so there is a filter happening in terms of what you see. And that filter is not just who you're friends with. It's not just the echo chamber of the voices that you identify with. There is additional filtering happening. And so it's going to be important for tech companies to look at how those algorithms are or not boxing out pieces of information um, that can, um, that, uh, that are important resources, especially for marginalized communities. Wow. Um, so I feel so young. I got on Facebook when I was in ninth grade. Um, oh my God, but- <laughs> Sam, get, go away. That's wild. Sam, go yes, away. Yes. Um, and by the I time I got, I was a freshman in college, like f- Facebook wasn't cool anymore when I was a freshman in college. <laughs> um, Bye, Sam. But, Baby Sam. But more to the point, uh, <laughs> more to the point, you know, what, what you were saying, Brittany, around the, the power that these tech companies have. I mean, essentially, they design the algorithm that controls how the majority of Americans receive their news and information. Um, and with that comes a huge responsibility to make sure that, number one, people aren't receiving, you know, fake news or Russian paid for news that we, you know, recently heard, you know, the Russians paid was like $100,000 in ads targeting uh, swing districts during the election. But it also means that they have an affirmative obligation to make sure that people are receiving news that challenges their preconceptions that makes them better people. And I haven't seen many tech companies step up and honor that obligation. Um, You know, I think about a lot of people who've never, you know, people who are, you know, maybe older white people in the Midwest, you know, folks who might have voted for Trump, um, who've never seen positive representations of black or brown people, who've never seen realistic um, you know, complicated um, perspectives that are not, you know, these stereotypes that they're seeing through Fox News and these other sources. And uh, what I haven't seen is a tech platform really step up and say, we actually want to expose you to things that are going to complicate your understanding and make you uh, a better citizen. And I'm hopeful that, you know, particularly what, given what we've seen, uh, the calamity of this past election, that they will uh, begin to take on that responsibility. Part of what's interesting, uh, something that I've been thinking about coming off of my social media hiatus last month is, and I mentioned this before, but like that even when we say people getting news, like quote unquote news from social media, I think that also it's important to recognize that that extends beyond like news articles specifically, because part of what you miss when you're not in these spaces, you know, I think everybody should take time away from social media. I think it's good for your sanity. It's also interesting because there's a sort of undercurrent of cultural and social discourse and political discourse that that is uh, a sort of outgrowth of the articles, right? So, like seeing your what your friends have to say about an article, or seeing what you know journalists are saying about their own work that isn't in the in the piece, and all of these different things that represent a different uh, sort of iteration of um, th- news and thought. Uh, that simply didn't exist, obviously, a decade ago. Um, and and I think that we can't underestimate the extent to which not only the news articles that people are reading shape their ideas about the world, but 
seeing people that they know or follow what they have to say about the news, how, how much that shapes the way people are thinking about the world. So to close, I wanted to share um, a fairly positive piece of news. We talk a lot on the pod about criminal justice reform. Um, I had the fantastic opportunity to actually meet and spend some time with Kim Fox um, last evening. You all heard her on the pod earlier this week, just an incredible leader. Um, And I, I asked her kind of what are some of the things that we need to make sure we pay closer attention to um, in the very intricate web of criminal justice. And she uh, said a number of things, including juvenile justice. So I spent some time last night and this morning digging more deeply into that um, and found some positive news uh, coming out of South Dakota. So in 2014, a group of judges, lawmakers, and county officials got together and created the Juvenile Justice Reinvestment Initiative Task Force. Um, they essentially were tasked with creating a plan for how to reduce the population of young people going into the correctional, um, into their correctional facilities. And in 2015, they had about 205 young people in those facilities. They've cut that number in about half, actually, and have uh, ni- in 2017 admitted 96 young people to those facilities. Uh, and so I think it's really important to note that not only um, do activists and uh, members of the community have an active role in shaping um, reform and how we press forward toward more justice, but actually that the people within the system, uh, people like those in South Dakota, people like Kim Fox, can take responsibility and quite frankly should take responsibility because they have more insight, more understanding about how the system works in order to change it. Um a lot of the shifts in South Dakota happened because of pretrial reforms, more young people getting referred to community services um, in order to um, in order to receive support that didn't require them to be incarcerated in any way. Um, they've also raised the threshold for the types of crimes that you have to commit in order to be um, in order to be incarcerated in a juvenile justice facility. Two things to note, um, especially with those pretrial reforms. White children were getting more benefit of the doubt in the system. And so um, while the reduction that we've seen applied to white children and children of color, um, there's a lot more work to be done to make sure that this reduction is equitable across the board. There's also a greater need for rural communities to be seeing this benefit because when um, when judges are referring young people to community services, if those services are not close to home, which they are often not for rural, uh, rural children, um, then that makes... Um, uh, support much more difficult. And so it's certainly not a perfect system yet, um, but it does give us, I think, a signal of hope and a reminder that um, just because you're in the system does not mean that you need to be of the system and you can actually be a part of a solution. I always like when we end on some good news. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politics the People's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. 
Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the She Commerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. And now my conversation with Congressman John Yarmuth from Kentucky, who is the ranking Democrat on the United States House Committee on the Budget. Hey, Congressman Yarmuth, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Well, it's good to be with you. Now, can we begin by just like, how did you get to Congress? What was that journey for you? <laughs> well, that's an interesting one. Um, for most of the um, preceding 15 years or so, I was uh, I worked in a, an alternative weekly newspaper, which I founded in 1990, and uh, wrote editorials every week. And uh, most of my career uh, before that was in communications, one way or another, in the, either in media or in uh, the private sector. And I spent even several years at the University of Louisville as, as the person in charge of all of their external communications. But uh, in 2005, the last thing I was thinking about was running for Congress. Uh, but and, and I was excited about the prospect that a guy named Jack Conway, who was a friend of mine and who had run uh, for this uh, the third district seat in 2002, I was going to run in 2006. And when he decided not to, I said to myself, well, that's not good. Uh, the incumbent, who was a woman named Ann Northup, is going to get another free pass. And because I didn't think there was anybody on the horizon who could, um, who could beat her. And so then I started thinking about making the race myself, even though I was not really looking for a new career at the time. I was, I had 
was leading what I considered to be the perfect life. I was working about three hours a week. I had actually sold my paper in 2003. So I was still writing a column and I was uh, doing a TV show, spent a lot of time uh, doing civic and charitable work and also playing a lot of golf. But I decided ultimately that if uh, the third district of Kentucky could be one of the 15 seats to flip from Republican to Democrat and give Democrats control of the House, then we would put an end to the George Bush uh, agenda, which I considered a, a worthy pursuit. So I finally decided, I said, I don't know whether I'm going to like being in Congress or not, but if I can be part of that change in, in the national agenda, I will have been part of something very important. Um, so here I am uh, six terms later. <laughs> So what is the budget committee? What does it do? How'd you get on it? Well, I've been on the committee. This is my uh, fifth term on the committee. And um, I, I originally got on the committee because I was on the Ways and Means Committee. And Ways and Means has an automatic spot on the, the budget committee and nobody else would take it. And I was the most junior member of, the, of Ways and Means and said, okay, they said, you're, you're our designee to budget. and uh, so it's uh, I've been on it ever since, and it, it's a you know it's a committee that is different than most committees because we really don't have any legislative authority or very little legislative authority, but it's a a committee that uh, kind of sets the parameters of what the priorities of government are, and so from that perspective, it, it's uh, it's pretty important. Now, in the news, um, most recently, we all saw the other day that it seems like Trump and Pelosi and Schumer have made some sort of tentative agreement about the debt ceiling, but so many people don't know what the debt ceiling is. And I probably don't understand the debt ceiling either. So how would you explain the debt ceiling issue to people? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a very um, unusual situation that we have in this country. And <clears throat> this was instituted legislatively back in the early seventies and it essentially says that um, the government's borrowing authority is set at a certain level. So it could be, you know, at this point, it's somewhere around $19 trillion. Uh, and I think there's only one other country in the world that has something like this. And you know, I, I'm all for doing away with it. It makes no sense. But routinely, over the last 40-something years, the Congress has just, whenever the debt of the country was exceeded the debt limit or was approaching it, we would routinely raise it. It was not controversial. It's only over the last few years that it's become controversial with the um, the Freedom Caucus, the, the remnants of the Tea Party who are in, in Congress, and um, they don't want to raise the debt. Now, the consequences of uh, breaching that debt limit would be that we could only pay out as a federal government the money that we take in. So there, since we don't take in as much money as we spend, then we would have the, the Treasury Department would have to prioritize what it pays. And this would cause, a, um, I think, a, a great deal of disruption in the international and economic uh, markets, financial markets. And it might even cause a downgrading in the credit rating of the, of the United States. So let me repeat that back. So if we, if the mm -hmm. debt ceiling, if the debt ceiling is not raised and because America, the government spends more money than it takes in, then we would essentially have to level off at whatever the revenue base is if the debt ceiling isn't raised. Exactly. And 
So you'd have to prioritize what you paid for. And that's why with the last time, uh, well, we, you know, what, what we would do, first of all, I think, is we would make all the Social Security payments and then we would pay the interest on the, the national debt. And then we would have to make some very serious choices. And uh, but more important than that, I think, is, again, what it would do to the financial uh, stature of the, the United States. And uh, we we are considered at the most secure uh, investment in the world, the uh, U.S. Treasury notes, and we we wouldn't want to lose that um, designation. But the other thing, kind of philosophically, is that the debt ceiling is not. Um, a, it basically says we're going to pay if we, when we raise the debt ceiling. It basically says we're going to pay the obligations that we already have. This isn't about new obligations. And so it's basically paying what we owe. And that's um, what I think a lot of the people who resist raising the debt ceiling um, don't, don't think about. They think it's kind of, well, we're, gonna, we're just spending more money. No, we've already committed to spending that money and we need to pay it. Now, for those that don't know, what is the difference between uh, the House's responsibility with regard to the budget and the Senate's responsibility with regard to the budget? Well, actually, there is no difference. Um, the The budget, both the House and Senate, presumably need to pass a budget resolution that is identical, just like any other bill that the Congress would enact. Now, uh, the, that has not happened since I've been in Congress. I don't know when the last time there was actually a budget resolution that passed both houses. So to a certain extent, the budget process in both the House and Senate has been almost a rhetorical exercise. And because it's, it, it has never had any, any, uh, any legal uh, standing, or, again, over the last decade or so. So we fight over these statements of values and priorities, but ultimately the, the appropriators um, have decided how much is going to be spent on what. It gets pretty complicated, but ultimately uh, the Senate and the House have to do the same thing. The only difference in kind of Financially, that between the House and Senate is that all revenue raising measures uh, have to have to originate in the House. So, if we wanted to raise taxes or increase fees on something, uh, then that legislation would have to begin in the House. But it's still going to have to be passed by both the House and Senate. And what other things besides the budget should we be paying attention to with this Congress? There seems to be a lot of other big issues that we're thinking about in the public. But as a member of Congress, like what should we be? What is what's coming up for you, or like what should we be paying attention to that's not just the budget? Well, DACA is something that does certainly we Democrats and and a certain number of Republicans are are very very concerned about uh, immigration reform in general is something that the Congress should be it, I think very actively engaged in. We're not doing that. Uh, Republicans really don't want to get involved much with immigration legislation. It's it's a hot potato for many of them. Um, but we, you know, in, uh, spending on infrastructure, a national infrastructure program is something that we ought to be dealing with. Republicans are very interested in passing a, a comprehensive tax reform proposal, which I think is going to be pretty controversial. Uh, those are the main things I think that, uh, we'll be dealing with the rest of this Congress, which goes through the end of next year. Is Trump uh, what you thought he'd be? Is the Trump administration what you thought it'd be? Uh, Trump is exactly what I thought 
he would be, which is an unmitigated disaster. Uh, I'm a little bit surprised by the administration. I thought that he was a better manager than he's turned out to be. I thought he would actually bring in competent people who understood government. He's not done that. And if you talk to anybody who's working in any of the government agencies now, they'll tell you that um, they're basically shells, shells, uh, shell operations right now. He has not appointed many of the positions that um, are are really critical to the functioning of those agencies. So we have a we have a secretary of state, but many of the deputy secretary positions, which actually deal with certain parts of the world, uh, are not filled. So. Um, and that makes it very difficult for us to work with any of the agencies because the people we would normally talk to as members aren't, don't exist. And uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty much a joke, uh, this administration. And it's, it's unfortunate. But So he surprised me in that respect. I thought he would be a better manager. But in terms of the way he's acted, um, I, to me, it's only a matter of degree. I didn't expect a a stable person and I've gotten a totally unhinged unstable person. <laughs> now, do you think it's likely that we'll get impeachment or do you think that it's likely that he'll be there for four years? You know, I, I kind of, I kind of agree with the odds uh, that the odds makers are putting out there that it's kind of 50, 50 proposition as to whether he'll finish his term. My guess is if he leaves, it will not be because of impeachment. I think that's unrealistic with the Republican controlled Congress but um, you know, I, I can see a scenario in which he gets so frustrated and uh, um, unhinged that he just walks away from the presidency. I think that's a more likely scenario. Do you think that there's an opportunity for the Democrats to win in 18? Yeah, yeah I believe if the election were held today, that we would take control of the House uh, r- rather comfortably and we would if not take control of the Senate, would actually uh, gain a little bit of ground. Right now, the generic polling on who who the American people would rather see run the Congress, uh, Democrats or Republicans, is overwhelmingly Democratic. Um, and you know, if the mar- if the generic polling were to around ten percent, which in some polls it is, ten percent preference. I think that would mean that Democrats would probably not lose any Senate seats and Republicans would lose at least two, which would make it 50-50. And there could be a surprise here and there. But I I, I really like our position right now. Things can change radically over the next uh, uh, 14 months. But uh, again, I think if the election were today, Democrats would definitely be in control of the House. Are you going to run for president? (laughs) No, I'm not going to run for president. (laughs) A lot of my colleagues are, though. I've got, you know, John Delaney from Maryland's running, and I think a guy named Seth Moulton from Massachusetts is testing the waters. Tim Ryan from Ohio's testing the waters. So uh, there's there are a few Democratic House members that are looking at it. Do you think it's too far away to, to start hypothesizing about 2020? Do you think that the Dems should be laying the groundwork now for 2020? Like, what? How are you helping people process, like, the next uh, presidential election? Well, I, I definitely think it's, it's not too early. I, I think right now, as a matter of fact, you know, the, I think a lot of Democrats say, uh, if our choices are Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, then we're going to be in trouble. Not necessarily because those people are not appealing, but that's a whole different generation. And we have to start appealing to a, a, a much younger constituency. And so I think 
particularly with these younger candidates who are out there now going to Iowa, going to New Hampshire, uh, that uh, it's important that they get out there to see who will gain some traction. Because, again, I think we need to have a, a primary um, a primary season in 2020 that actually gives Democratic voters a choice of different generations as well as different individuals. And what do you make of the DNC? And I, you know, I, in full transparency, I'm on the DNC transition team um, and have my own sort of criticisms of the party as, as many people do. But what do you, as an, as an insider, as a member of Congress, what do you think about the DNC? Well, I've not been happy at all with the DNC over my years here. Um, I think there is a positive change going on. I think there's much greater recognition of the need to um, to be active at all levels uh, so that we're dealing with state legislative races around the country and we're, we're, we haven't lost sight of governor's races and we haven't lost sight of uh, even metro council races or city council races. Uh, that's where we've lost so much ground and we've hurt ourselves with redistricting. So I, I think... Um, I think the new regime at the DNC is is um, much more uh, committed to that kind of approach, and so that's that's positive. But obviously, they're still very new, and we'll see what the uh, what they can accomplish. And what are the issues that are important in Kentucky? Well, I would say right now the most important issue in Kentucky is the opioid crisis. Uh, we're one of the states that has been hit. Extremely hard uh, in my district. We're it's the as in some other places. It's the number one cause of death right now, and we're losing uh, in my district a person a day to overdoses, and that's not even the the, the tragic cost of those people who don't die, uh, but who show up in emergency rooms on an almost daily basis. Uh, who are taxing our healthcare system? Who are you know, disrupting their families? Uh, uh, it's it's just uh, a horrible situation. One statistic that came out the other day was that in my district alone. Now remember, congressional districts are about seven hundred fifty thousand people. In my district alone, over the last four and a half years, there have been two hundred and I'm sorry, one hundred and ninety-seven million doses of prescription painkillers prescribed. Wow which is like 250 for every man, woman, and child in the district. So we've got to get a handle. I mean, there are all sorts of, of segments of the drug problem. And uh, in some parts of Kentucky, we still have, um, we still have a meth problem. Uh, in Western Kentucky, we don't see the opioid problem, but we still have uh, huge meth problems. So we've got addiction all over the state. And uh, the one thing that I think we can, much more easily get a handle on is these prescription drugs. And we need to, we need to work on that very, very hard. Now, I know that you've uh, written about and spoken out about Medicaid expansion in Kentucky. What Mm -hmm. can you, for people that don't know what Medicaid expansion is, can you explain it? And then why is it important in a place like Kentucky? Sure. Was this when, when we passed the affordable care act in 2010, we referred to it as a three legged stool. There were three parts of it. All it aimed, all aimed at expanding access to healthcare, getting reducing the number of the uninsured, but also uh, getting a handle on the problems in the in the health in healthcare uh, industry for people who already had insurance. So, one of the ways we <clears throat> we made access to cover to coverage more broad 
was to expand Medicaid eligibility to people making up to 138% of the poverty level. So <clears throat> in, in different states that had different impacts, in Kentucky, the, before the expansion of the ACA, of expansion of Medicaid, the eligibility was up to 100%, only up to 100% of the poverty level, but it was limited to people with children, to women with children. So if you were a single man who was making 10000 or $12,000 a year, you couldn't qualify for Medicaid under any circumstances. Um, what does 100% of the poverty level, can you explain that? Okay, so the poverty level right now is it's a, it's a kind of a government-established line, and the, the judgment is that if you make right now over $16,000, under $16,000 as an individual, you are considered poor, legally poor. And, and that has some implications as to what government benefits you're, um, you're eligible for. For a family of four, that's $33,000. So essentially what we did in the Affordable Care Act was say, if you make up to, it ends up being 40 something thousand dollars with a family of four, you qualify for Medicaid coverage. Got it. And if you were an individual, if you make up to about $20,000 a year, you were, you were eligible for Medicaid. In Kentucky, what that meant was almost a half a million people now are covered. This is in a state of 4.4 million. A half a million people are covered by Medicaid expansion alone. We already had about 800,000 people covered by uh, traditional Medicaid. Now it's about a million three hundred thousand. So it's you know it's like it's getting close to forty percent of our entire state is covered under Medicaid. Did it go through the way that you wanted it to go through in Kentucky, or is it still a fight? No, it's still a fight because we have a governor now who's been. Well, well let me step back a second. Our governor uh, went before this current governor was Steve Bashir. He was a two-term governor, and he was in office when the Affordable Care Act was enacted. And he determined that he was going to commit the state to the best implementation of the Affordable Care Act that we could possibly do. And by most measures, people would say Kentucky did the best job of, of implementing the Affordable Care Act. Our governor, current governor, who was elected in 2015, campaigned against the Affordable Care Act. Actually, he campaigned against Obamacare and not the Affordable Care Act. And there's a very, that's a very significant approach. And so he was committed to undoing as much of uh, the Affordable Care Act in Kentucky as he could. And he's he's done his best to sabotage the way it's working. Uh, but he's, we still have a half million people who are getting health care who don't want to lose it. And um, so it's it's a fight that we continue to have. And when I, going back to the comment about Obamacare, when we polled one year about Healthcare reform in Kentucky. We asked the question: Do you support or oppose the Affordable Care Act, also known as Connect, which was what we called it in Kentucky? And then the next question was: Do you support or oppose the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare? There was a twenty-point flip in support and opposition. If you called it Connect or if you called it Obamacare, so people actually liked the program, but when they heard that it was Obamacare, they didn't like it. It's <laughs> so it was wild. The same thing. So there are a lot of people right now who feel like the world is imploding, right? Where like so much is happening. It feels like it's bad after bad after bad after bad. And they are starting to lose hope. What do you say to those people? 
Well, I wish I could be uh, offer comfort in that regard. I, I've said recently that, and I'm not given to exaggeration or hyperbole, but I've never been more concerned about the stability of our democracy. And you know, I, I, I would have thought about retiring from this job, but now there's so much at stake protecting, the, I think, the, the democracy, the institutions that we have. The, you know, I come from a media background. What the way this administration has set out to to discredit the media is is shameful and is, is dangerous. Uh, the one thing that I, I think is encouraging is that so far the institutions have held up pretty well, and the media continues to do its job and 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 hold people responsible, and the courts uh, continue to function despite the fact that Donald Trump doesn't really understand the separation of powers in the judicial system. Uh, so. I guess that's the one thing I would um, say is comforting. But what my my biggest concern right now is what uh, President Trump and his administration are doing to the the position of the United States in the world. And I spent a couple of weeks in Ireland over the August recess and consumed a lot of international media. And um, our our position in the world as a leader leadership position is has been severely damaged, um, and many of the countries that always look to the United States for leadership are now saying, "Well, we're on our own. We're going to do our own thing. We can't count on the United States anymore." And that that's a pretty frightening thing. That is that is no good. What what can people do if people ask you like, "What can I do? How can I how can I make a difference?" Like, what do you say to people in Kentucky who are like? You know, I'm I'm worried about the world, Congressman. I want to I want to help out. Well, I, I say to everyone: get active, um, get organized. There's a there's so much energy out there right now. The the, the uh, indivisible movement, uh, the resistance movements. Um, every every time I go to a meeting of um, of citizens, that's politically <laughs> a politically oriented meeting. There there are record turnouts. And what we're saying to everybody is stay active, uh, continue to call your representatives, whether it's state representatives or federal representatives, just barrage them with phone calls if it's something you don't like, tell them where you are, and then get out and make sure that uh, we have a great turnout in, in 2018 for congressional races. Because um, we, when, when our voters turn out, then Democrats win. When they don't turn out, we lose. And that's what happened in in uh, 2016, uh, our voters, unfortunately, didn't turn out the way they should. Uh, I don't think that's going to be a problem next time. I think the energy level throughout the country is is substantial. And people understand now that it does make a difference who wins elections. Now, I'll ask you this because you're here and you, you know, you're in Congress and I don't know many other people in Congress yet is... Um, <laughs> It doesn't matter. A lot of people are like, okay, I've called, I've faxed, I've emailed, but they have no way of knowing, or like they went to a town hall meeting. They have no way of knowing whether it actually matters or not, but it like feels like it does. What do you, does it matter when you get a million calls about something or faxes, or is there like a better way that people can get in touch with the office? Like, how do you, what, how do we make sense of that? No, it does matter. And I, I think, one of the things that the recent history was that um, it, I think it was citizen involvement that stopped the repeal efforts for the Affordable Care Act. I don't I don't think it was Democrats in Congress who stopped it. I think it was the people who showed up at town hall meetings, people who called. I talked to one Colorado legislator uh, 
who said that, uh, so this is sort of hearsay, but he said his senator, his Republican senator, got, was getting 7,000 calls a day in his office about the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, that kind of, that kind of activity does make a difference. You know, if you get 50 calls, you tend to say, okay, there are going to be 50 people opposed or on, on any side of any issue in your congressional district. But you start getting into the hundreds and, and certainly in the thousands, and you say, okay, there's something here that uh, I have to pay attention to. So it does make a difference. And what is it for you? What's the best way to get in touch? Like, do calls matter more to you? Do faxes matter more to you? Do, do emails matter more to you? No, call, well, here, calls make a difference. Emails make a difference if they're not part of an organized effort. So if, if I get, you know, if I get 100 emails and it was just somebody who said, click on this and send this to your representative, then I know it, it didn't take any effort of that from that person to do it. So that's less impressive than somebody who actually crafts a, a personal email message. Uh, those are those are very significant. But again, you know, on on any issue, it, it it's numbers more than um, than substance because you'll always get a you know almost any issue you'll get a fifty or a hundred people interested in it, and they'll communicate. But when you you know one one issue that uh, I remember when. Barack Obama was asking for authority to um, send troops into Syria. This is back in 2013, I believe. Uh, our calls, calls into our office were like 600 to three against it. Wow! And and that was a that was a that was replicated as far as I could tell in most offices. So he didn't. We didn't give him the authority to do that because our, it was clear that our constituents were overwhelmingly opposed to it. Um, that's a, that's kind of a rare instance, but um, but it shows what can what's what can have an effect. Got it. The last question would be: What's a piece of advice that you've gotten over time that has stuck with you? <laughs> About three days after I announced that I was running, a f- friend of mine. I ran into a friend of mine in a coffee shop and he said, I'm going to give you one piece of advice and it's the only piece of advice I'll ever give you. He said, start smiling, keep smiling. (laughs) And the only time you stop smiling is when you're going to say the most important thing you have to say. And that's been one of the best pieces of of, of political advice that I've ever gotten because there's nothing more disarming if you get into a contentious discussion with someone, whether it's a constituent or a colleague, uh, that when you smile and they understand that you, this is this is not personal animosity. This is a discussion between two rational individuals. That's the way you perceive it. Um, so you can disarm people and uh, with that smile. And again, that's the best advice I've ever gotten. There we go. Well, Congressman Yarmouth, thanks so much for making time to be on uh, the podcast today. Look forward to talking to you again and consider you a friend of the pod. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Dre. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned. There's more to come. Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless 
horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at the dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco, former White House Deputy Chief of Staff and also a host of Hysteria. And this week, we were asked to talk about Women's History Month. And on behalf of women everywhere, okay, fine. Our show, Hysteria, is about the way news and culture impacts women in America every week of the year. From the latest on reproductive rights to the ways pop culture handles women's stories. And not just because it's March, okay? We exist the other 11 months of the year, too. What? Don't... (laughs) Uh, You heard it here first. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts. And now my conversation with Don Leon Gardner, who plays Charlie on the hit series on OWN, Queen Sugar. Don Leanna, I'm excited to have this conversation with you on Pod Save the People. Thanks so much. It is a pleasure to be here. So I know you and I think a lot of us know you from your role as Charlie on Queen Sugar. Mm-hmm. But before we talk about Queen Sugar, can you talk about how you became an actress? Yes. Um, it was definitely an unexpected road uh, that began really when I was little. Um, it was, uh, it was, uh, I, I definitely started when I was really around eight. Um, a friend of mine, or a friend of rather than mother's, uh, was a casting director and uh, just suggested that we, you know, we, we <clears throat> uh, act. And, and my mom was like, actually, they already go to a school where they're doing that. And they're sort of, they're sort of naturally already inclined towards it. So we took a casting director workshop and, um, and then were introduced to an agent and ended up signing with that agent. It was very much sort of that L.A. story of, like, when in Rome, you know? <laughs> it's a very Los Angeles thing. Um, so we started acting when we were little. My brother ended up sort of dropping out of it, didn't really interest him. He wanted to do sports, and I, I sort of stuck with it. Um, and then somewhere around, I was I would say, 13, 14, something began to sort of go off in my head about basically, you know, why I was doing it. I was sort of asking this question of it wasn't just about it being a fun thing to do as a kid, but, you know, really what, what was, what was I doing and why was I doing it? And I had, I had taken a, a trip actually to, to India that had, that had really woken me up to hmm. the world basically. And, uh, and so it wasn't enough to be on a set, to be, uh, you know, just sort of having fun. It was much more important to me to, to, to question what my, what my actions were, were contributing to the world that, that began, when I was at 14, and I ended up uh, leaving um, 
leaving the business and, and, and turning down a show, actually, and going off to an arts high school um, where I was sort of interested in becoming a writer, director, filmmaker, uh, because I had basically looked around a set when I was 14 and, and seen that the, the person who really looked like they were engaged in something was the director. And so off I went to this arts high school and ended up falling, ironically, back in love with acting, uh, being in these theater classes that I had never been in and never really done theater. And then that took me to Juilliard. And um, and then after Juilliard, even during Juilliard, I still questioned whether or not this was for me. Um, I, I actually was considering an activist path. Really? Um, or going to school for absolutely, yeah. Bettina and I, we, we laugh about this a lot because when she met me, it was at Juilliard. And, Routine you know, is also on the show. Cast, Routine is yeah, also. Routine Wesley plays um, Nova Borlon, my, my sister on the show on Queen Sugar. Um, she, when we were cast, we were on the phone with each other and she was like, it's a little crazy because in real life, I'm Charlie and you're Nova. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and, and what she was really speaking to is at the time when she met me, you know, I was absolutely rally attending, fist in the air, you know, I was very, very active as, uh, as an engaged, you know, activist. And, um, and so I was considering taking that route very fully. Um, and I felt like at the time, and I think this has shifted a lot, but uh, it felt, and, and also I was young and I was sort of seeing it through a very young lens, but I felt like uh, the activist world at the time seemed fueled a bit by like rage and anger. And I, I, was, I was struggling to, to find a place of mindfulness within it. And I felt like the art world and the acting world, that there was activism within that world. And that I, if I remained an actor, um, that, that there was a way that I could um, do my activism within my art. That was, that was very, that became very uh, important to me. So that's what happened. I, I graduated from school and got out into the world and, and kept going and often, often, often questioned whether or not it was, what was for me, um, being a black woman in this business, it can really, it can really make you, you know, question if, if this is where you should be putting your energy. Um, and, and, uh, finally auditioned for Queen Sugar and felt like, wow, this, um, this project sort of hits all of these check marks, you know, in uh, a list of things that are important to me and, uh, and feel so honored and so privileged to be part of it. Now, I, I did not know, actually, that you had identified as an activist before you more fully identified as a as an actress. Uh, you know, I, I have read that you you talk about being a feminist and that being important to you. Can you uh, just unpack what that means to you and how that, if at all, influenced your decision to be in Queen Sugar? Sure. I mean, you know, I remember having um, really seminal moments. Um, and actually, they came, in my opinion, maybe a little late for me. I feel like some people had these moments much earlier than I did. But um, I remember being in a show, a theater show, um, that was about a group of women in the Congo. And it was directed by an incredible director, theater director named Liesl Tommy, who's actually one of our, our season two directors. It was wild that, uh, that she ended up booking this <laughs> wow. as, a, uh, as a television director. It was truly like, my, I felt like my life was just coming full circle. Um, but seeing her in that position as a director, um, and so 
I don't know how to describe it, inviting of us as women to include all of our all of our politics and all of our um all of our pain and all all the all of the all the all of the the fullness of who we were as women i I just hadn't experienced that before, and it was watching this woman navigate leadership so beautifully huh. that sort of let me know and and woke me up to how little I was seeing women in leadership and how how much of a surprise it still was to me. And even the fact that it was a surprise was like a light bulb going off about how normalized it had been. And and I I don't consider myself from a generation that's, you know, very traditional, like, you know, I'm not from the 50s, or the, you know what I mean? I'm not right. from a very sort of traditional generation or something. It's just that I just realized how entrenched um, the communication is and the narrative is that uh, women really are second tier huh. and that our experiences and our role is is a little subpar. Huh. And I, it, it really, something about that experience woke me up to uh, passionately wanting to see women in leadership all over the business. And I just began to sort of I don't know, talk about it constantly. You know, people in my life who've known me for a long time, they, they're sort of marveling at, at the fact that I'm being, you know, that I'm in a project that's being led by two of the most powerful women in Hollywood, especially black women in Hollywood, and who are so vocal about... Oprah and um, Ava. <laughs> Oprah and Ava yeah, DuVernay. Yeah, Oprah, you, Oprah, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey and Ava DuVernay. <laughs> so like, I don't even need to name them, but you know, we know who they are. Um, but, but they, they, they really are saying, you know, these friends of mine, like, we can't believe it because you've literally, it's like, you've been conjuring this Mm. for years. Uh, and it, and really it sort of started there. Um, so I, I feel like, I feel like it's in a a very important time and, and a very powerful, potentially very powerful time for women to take ownership and, um, and to be, really um, front-hooked in how uh, how much our experience matters, how much our voices matter, how much our aesthetics matter, how much um, they really are not subpar. They are absolutely front and center to our own lives. But those narratives are, they, they are critical to our world right now, critical. Um, and I think that's really where it comes from. It, it, it was that moment a long time ago, and then now, being led by these two women who embody that. Now, I, this is a question out of my curiosity. Is so I know that Ava, uh, who is an incredible director, and I speak for the public. You, I, you can speak to it as somebody who act, who actually works with her. But uh, I know that she only directed a few of the episodes that launched the series, and then has had an incredible a group of women come and lead, be the key directors on the rest of the episodes. What is it like to be in a project where the directors change so often? Is it hard when you're as an actress? Is it? Is it? You know, I I've never been in a. I've never been directed by anybody. So I'm curious about this. It makes sense to me that Ava has made this commitment. I think it is an important commitment. I'd love to know how that changes the dynamic of uh, being an actress in a show that has made this commitment. You know, that has been one of the most incredible parts of this experience um, because it has been woman after woman. After, I've only been directed by women for the past year and a half. That's incredible. And it's, 
it, it, it really is. Like, I, I wish that there were... I sort of lost language last year because I was sort of in shock that mm. this experience was happening. I had I, I lost the ability to even describe how emotional that that is. You know, that all of a sudden you're, you're normal for this position of director. It changes. It completely changes. And it includes you. And it includes you in front of your face. Like, it, it is such an emotional experience. Um, and because Ava is so involved um, with the development of the storylines, with, you know, where she wants the characters to go, you know, I've had conversations with her throughout. It's, it's not like, she, even though she's not directing every episode, it, it, she's, she's, you know, very, very much in there in terms of the conversations around the show. Um, but being able to see so many women, so distinct women, you know, what, it's not like, oh, just they, they just bleed all into one female director <laughs> sort of type. Right. They're all extremely distinct uh, personalities, visions, aesthetics, you know, all of that. Uh, but to see sort of woman after woman after woman in that position, to, to, to feel um, their different styles, to, uh, to, to it, it has been emotionally transformative, extremely transformative. Um, and nothing has been lost with having multiple directors. I mean, that's the way of, that's the way of TV. You know, that's, <clears throat> it's not something that's, that's necessarily new. It's, um, but what is new is I think there's something about these women and not even these women, just women in particular being in a position as, as, as people of color have been and, and, and other marginalized groups where there, it, there is such gratitude and such humility in taking on the helm because they recognize how that opportunity has been historically rare. And so what that does, it creates an atmosphere on the set of inclusion. It creates an atmosphere of having conversations and being open to ideas and and good ideas coming not just from one person, but coming from many people, you know, evaluating different perspectives and, and, and wanting to create an environment where we are including, you know, um, different points of view. It, it creates an, an, an environment that I've never experienced before on a TV show. It, it's an extremely um, graceful and extremely accepting um, environment. And, and the work is, is deepened because of that. There's a certain amount of, um, of freedom and a certain amount of just encouraging to bring all of yourself that comes from just that choice. So it has, you know, it's revolutionizing things, I think, in the industry in a big way, but it's also, it's also, it's revolutionized for me personally, a way of working that I just didn't, I didn't know, I didn't see coming. And it was, it's been tremendously powerful. Now, on, I know you've also been in Luke Cage, um, but but I just have a lot of questions about your time in Queen Sugar. Uh, is yes. you know, the show deals with, and I no spoilers, but the show deals with complicated uh, storylines around family, around identity, around class, um, and around sort of context and place and addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, what if you had to think about one or two sort of lessons or storylines that you think 
speak to the human condition in a way that resonates with you as a as a woman, as a black woman, as an artist, what would they be? And I ask that because I think about this show as a teaching show in its own way, that it is not mm-hmm. pure entertainment, that it is also showing the complexity of black people in a way that we don't mm-hmm. often see and doing that really intentionally. So I'd love to know uh, what what lessons are you lifting or do you would you like to lift that people think about when they think about this show? You know, I love this question because I think what I was able to articulate both to myself and to others last year uh, amidst my shock <laughs> was um, was my joy at being a part of a project that spoke to the experiences that I've seen intimately in my family um, around people navigating identity and navigating um, justice and navigating um very intimate experiences of belonging, of, um, of socioeconomic clashes within family even, and that lens being authentically um, rich and, uh, and feeling like my family would see themselves and that there would, they, they, would, they would see all of the beauty that I have seen in them and that I wanted other people to see for such a long time, um, that they would see that reflected back and that they would know that that was being witnessed, um, by, by, you know, all those who watch the show. Hmm. Um, so that, that, that part of it remains, um, really strong for me. And to be very specific with your question, um, playing this role has been, it's like the gift that keeps on giving, you know, it's one of the most challenging and complicated characters I've, I've ever played, if not the most. Um, and one of the reasons I was so excited about it is because, you know, when you first meet her in season one, she's so, she appears as, you know, that LA perfect in control, in power, very high status woman um, who sort of has it all. And by the end of the episode, she that's, that's deconstructing. Hmm. And that was actually what was most interesting to me about the role. Because the role itself, you know, on paper, um, we have seen a version of this woman. You know, we have seen um, sort of the... Uh, the, the woman who's living the high life, who has it all together, who uh, has got the hair laid and the husband and the, you know what I mean? We've seen that woman, right. but we haven't seen her unpacked. Hmm. And that's where I was most leaning in, was I was most interested in, well, where is she going to go now by the end of, of the first episode? Because for me, um, I think, you know, walking as a black woman in this, in this world especially in this country, there is such pressure for perfection and there's such pressure to, to stand, to stand strong and hold up the world, even if it's your private world, you know, you've got to, you've got to be able to hold it up. And I think that, that we are in conversations, especially in television, some of the incredible work happening in shows across TV. Um, but we're in conversations about uh, all the different ways that we look and feel 
and those ways including vulnerability and those ways including imperfection and those ways including um, flaws. And I, I, this, this role is constantly this opportunity to uh, unpack and, and sort of reveal what's happening way down underneath the surface, right. you know, and by the end of the first episode, those, those sort of structures that she's built of the perfect life, they're crumbling. So she has no choice but to sort of go into her underground, into her dark, into her dark night of the soul. And she's, she's got to confront, you know, who she's become, who, who her husband has become and her role in that. And I think, I think because, um, at core, I, I see her as an actually extremely fragile, messy human mm. um, who, who's built these structures to protect that and to sort of even avoid that. Um, I'm always leaning into that part of her. I'm always leaning into her flaws. What advice do you give people who are trying to young black women, young black men, young actors and actresses who are trying to break into the industry or trying to be in the industry in a way that allows them to do meaningful work. You know, I think about as a, as a viewer, I've not seen many shows like Queen Sugar. So, yeah. uh, so for people who want to work on a show like this, what is your, what do you tell people? I'm sure people ask you all the time is, you know, how can I be at a place like you are? Like what, what do you say to those people? You know, I feel like a big part of my journey has been about, owning my own story and um and really really coming into um a place of listening because i think so often with this business you have to move so quickly and decide what you want but it, but it's so influenced by what other people want or what what you're being taught is um, popular to want, or there's, there's so many voices that are saying, um, here's what you should be after, here's what you should be thinking about. When I truly believe, you know, all of our, all the stuff that we walk with, all the, the, the experiences that we have, they're sort of designed perfectly for us to be doing something of service in the world. They're, they're sort of given to us with, uh, with grand purpose in mind. That's just my personal belief. So as I've as I've become, begun to make contact with that, um, it's required that I just I engage in a practice of listening and really reexamining as often as as needed. What am I doing? Why am I doing it? What am I doing? Why am I doing it? That makes a lot of sense to me. This idea of privileging um, purpose, right, and having purpose be the thing that guides you. What is it like to work with people that you admire so much, um, mm-hmm. and? And and how do you manage that and and still produce great art? <laughs> that is a really good question because, uh, again, last year was shock. Like that was my experience of last year was shock, and a good chunk of why that was is because I was literally working with my heroes, and I, I think that there's a certain something about like when you get your dream, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it's like. Um, Oh, I I wasn't prepared for that. I wasn't prepared hmm. for like getting the dream. I'd been so used to longing for the dream, um, right? <laughs> longing for the dream and articulating the dream and and praying for the dream. You right. know, 
um, and then when it when it came, at least this this part of it, um, it was I was in shock. I was I just was in shock. So every interaction with um, really both Ava and Oprah, but definitely Oprah, was just like I I I just couldn't speak. I was just constantly trying to figure out how to communicate beyond just either thank you or you know what I mean. We sort of like. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was a challenge. Um, but the work was where I wasn't in shock Hmm. and the work was, um, because I was so excited about the opportunity of this character of, um, revealing all of these crevices that I, that I just, I lean into. Um, I, that with Ava especially was just so exciting. I was just, I was so, um, engaged and passionate and, and wanting to have these conversations. I could have had them nonstop all year last year um, about who she was and where she was going and, and where is she now. Now this episode, I just, it was, it was, it was heaven. Cool. Yeah. Well, Donlian, thank you so much for joining today on Potsy of the People. And uh, everybody should watch Queen Sugar or Luke Cage because Donlian is also in Luke Cage uh, when, you, <laughs> when you have a moment. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to Pod Save the People this week. Make sure that you tell your friends. Make sure you rate it wherever you get your podcasts. And I will see you back next week. Wow.